It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pastor Xavier Reese suggests heeding this simple truth. God's Word is so accurate. Do you realize every time you give a prophecy, every time you give a date, every time you mention the king, you got to make sure that sucker lines up with everybody else? There's no other book like the Bible. None. The best definition of the word history is really simply to hyphenate it. His story. God's. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. One of the most beloved of all Bible stories has to be Daniel in the lion's den. But Pastor Xavier, you're here as we start a new series in the book of Daniel today to tell us there's much more to the prophet Daniel than that. The book of Daniel is a fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Judgment has come to Israel, three captivities. Daniel is in Shushan the palace, and now he is going to be used by God. Israel is in captivity, but God's on the throne, and he's revealing the time of the Gentiles, and Daniel is his key prophet to give revelation to the people of God and to warn the world of all that's to come, even to the very last end where the Antichrist will come. The book of Daniel is an incredible book, and as he is used of God, God reveals and unfolds the different empires of the world, culminating with the one ruler of the world, the Antichrist, to come. Incredible, incredible book. And Daniel, from a teenager to probably the age of 90, was a faithful servant unto God. Filled with prophetic information, accurate historical information, revealing the will of God for the people of God, Even though he's judging them, God is the one who is in control of history. Come and study the Word of God with us. Daniel, incredible prophet. Revealing the will of God for the people of God indeed. Well, it's time we get today's study underway. Here's Pastor Xavier beginning Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is the greatest example of what God can do through a person despite the culture and environment if they are living for God. Especially young people. Daniel should be studied seriously, for he's a man who is greatly beloved of God, as we will read, because he lived for God alone. The time in which he lived was not the most moral, nor was it the place which was the easiest to live for God as he was taken into captivity to Babylon. The temptations he went through, I'm sure, were not easy, perhaps worse than even those that we might believe are upon us. Peer pressure, the permissiveness of the day, could have easily justified his lack of commitment, his consecration, his care for the things of God. But he chose to stand and to live for God. So, what we want to do is study the exile experience of Daniel as he arrived at Babylon in verses 1 through 7, which is characterized by three things. Let me read here for us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasury house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, 
but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and the Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The exile experience of Daniel as he arrives in Babylon is characterized by the captivity information regarding Daniel in verse 1 and 2. Second, we have the cultural indoctrination regarding Daniel, verse 3 through 5. And then you have the co-spiritual identification regarding Daniel, 6 and 7. We begin with the captivity information regarding Daniel, verse 1 and 2. Notice in verse 1, Daniel was taken captive in the reign of Jehoiakim. Uh, the date is 605, 606. Now, notice the conqueror is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Daniel prophesied through three kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, seven-year captivity, and well into it because when we see Daniel as an old man, he's in his 90s when he comes out of retirement. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was followed by other kings during those 70 years, and Daniel certainly knew Nebuchadnezzar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, and he saw 34 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel saw his son, evil Marduk, or Amel Marduk, servant of Marduk, the god, and he came to the throne for two years in 562 to 560 B.C. And Daniel then saw the reign of Nergal-Lezer, or nergal Sherezer uzer Now, some of the names are, are given differently depending whether it's the Aramaic, the Hebrew, stuff like that. Okay, so you understand. Let me give you a clear example. I go sometimes somewhere, I put my name, they said, uh, and I put Xavier. And they say, oh, is your name Javier? Now, if you're of Mexican descent, you'll say Javier because of your pride and all that. If I'm in Mexico, my name's Javier. If I'm in the United States, my name's Xavier. Okay, but they're both the same one, not two different persons. Okay, that gives you an idea of the, of the transliteration and translation of names. Okay, different spellings, but the same person. Now, he was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law for four years. Daniel saw Nebuchadnezzar's son, Labishi Marduk. He reigned for four months only, and who was succeeded or usurped by Nabonidus. Nabonidus put Belshazzar, his son, in command of the city as he was making his drunken feast with the vessels of the temple of God. The writing on the wall came, and Daniel came to decipher them, and he says, your number's up. You're dead tonight, Daniel 5. Babylon was taken by Cyrus the Persian who made the proclamation to the Jews to return to their homeland according to God's prophecies led by Zerubbabel, 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and many other passages. God's word is so accurate. Do you realize every time you give a prophecy, every time you give a date, every time you mention the king, you got to make sure that sucker lines up with everybody else? There's no other book like the Bible. None. Doesn't speak in generalities, but very specifics. Now notice verse 2. Daniel was taken to Babylon. 
Babylon was a very impressive city. The Lord Yahweh allowed Jehoiakim, notice, to be carried away in judgment by Nebuchadnezzar. Habakkuk the prophet was having problems with what God was doing. God was doing nothing. He said, I can't believe you're not doing it. Look at all this stuff. And he says, Habakkuk, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me. Come on, I'm your prophet. Okay, I'm going to take Babylon, and I'm going to chase my people for 70 years. I can't believe it. I told you. <laughs> Listen to me. God will take a more wicked nation and judge his people and judge other nations because of the amount of light they had. I have no problem saying that God is judging America. Absolutely no problem. Because we have sown the wind, we reap the whirlwind for a whole century. We've gone from an incredible nation to a very corrupt nation. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God is in control. He's on the throne. That's a good subtitle for the whole book of Daniel. <laughs> and he's not biting his nails. I bite my nails sometimes, but not God. Isaiah, you remember, told Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, after God had healed him and extended his life for 15 years, some of the ambassadors from Babylon came. Babylon wasn't no big empire then. Assyria was, okay? And uh, they say, hey, we want to congratulate you, this and that. And he showed them all his houses, war machines, all the treasures. Isaiah walks in and says, hey, dude, what, who were they? He says, oh, there were some just nice guys from Babylon. They came to congratulate me. He said, what did you show them? Everything. There's nothing I didn't show them. He says, oh, well, they're going to come back. They're going to take everything. And by the way, some of your kids, they're going to be eunuchs. Whoa. You know what Hezekiah said? Well, at least it's not in my lifetime. What a dog. Israel had not kept the land's Sabbaths. Like in Chronicles 36, 21, Jeremiah 25 deals with it throughout the prophets. Got greedy. Israel had become idolatrous. So Babylon became the instrument of God's judgment. Jeremiah 25 is very clear on that. Nebuchadnezzar's call, my servant, in Jeremiah 25, 9. And so God allows the treasures of the house to be taken, as we'll see. The Lord Yahweh allowed Jehoiakim to be carried away completely. Now, the Lord Yahweh, notice, allowed the spoils also. Some of those articles, which were the temple, and they're taken and carried away to Shinar, the place of the treasure house of the pagan temple of Marduk. God is allowing all this, okay? In judgment. He says, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of, of God, and he brought the article into the treasure house of his God. The implications are devastating. It meant that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, was defeated by the gods, small g, of Nebuchadnezzar. It meant that the gods of Nebuchadnezzar were more powerful than Yahweh. Was it true? No. But it appears to be from the human perspective. You must see the world through the heavenly perspective. If you look at it from the earth, you will always miss heaven. Nothing can be further from the truth. Yahweh is sovereign in full control. The name Shinar means country of two rivers, Tigris, Euphrates, Babylon. Shinar is one of the cities of the beginning of the kingdom of Babel, recorded in Genesis chapter 10. The billion tower of Babel. The ancient name is the territory known as Babylon or Chaldean, modern day Iraq. The city of Babylon was impressive. It had, its walls were 60 miles around, 16, 15 mile, miles on each side, 300 feet high and 80 feet thick. They extended 35 feet below the ground so that enemies could not tunnel under. 
It had one mile of clear space between the city and the wall. All the way around the wall was protected by wide, deep mold and canals filled with water. It had 250 towers on the wall, guard rooms for soldiers and 100 gates of brass. The city was divided by the Euphrates River in almost two equal parts, and it went through the city. And the banks were guarded by brick walls all the way around, 25 gates connecting streets and ferry boats. The great temple of Marduk, Bel, adjoined the Tower of Babel, was the most renowned sanctuary in all the Euphrates Valley. It also contained a golden table, which together weighed no less than 50,000 pounds. At the top of the golden image, Bel Ashtar, two golden lions of gold, table 40 feet long, 15 feet wide, a human figure of solid gold, 18 feet high. Truly, Babylon was a city of gold, as declared by Isaiah, Isaiah 14.4. The city was very religious. It had 33 temples and 180 altars to Ashtar. Kind of reminds you of Athens, doesn't it? The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world of that ancient time, built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Midian queen. The gardens had several tiered arches and over one another, each bearing a solid platform, 400 feet square, terraces covered with flowers, shrubs, and trees. Now, do you think Daniel could have been overwhelmed at the arrival of Babylon? 16, 18 years old, somewhere there. Wow. Put yourself there. How would you have responded? The best definition of the word history is really simply to hyphenate it. His story. God's. God is in control of history. Now, be careful that you don't blame God over the evil people do. In a way that you and I cannot understand and think it's impossible, God is in control of history and directing history without interfering to the free will of evil men because one day they're going to have to give an account for the evil they do and the destruction they bring upon people. Are we clear on that? Okay? Problem to me? Not to God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The book of Daniel makes this very clear. We're going to see that through Nebuchadnezzar. The history of the Bible is full of examples of God's judgment of nations for their sinful lifestyle. God judged the earth through Noah's flood. Killed everybody. Except for the eight. The Tower of Babel, rebelling against God. Instead of scattering through the earth, they built a religious system to oppose God. God confused the languages. Genesis 6 through 8 and Genesis 11, verse 1 through 9. You find that. God judged the Jews for rejecting their Messiah, and he allowed Titus to come in in 70 AD and to level the temple and the city, and the Jews were scattered and did not have a homeland for 1,900 years until 1948, as he said. Now, do you think that God is not going to judge America for its sinful lifestyle? Do you think God is not judging America? Do you think all that's going on is because we, we're just uh, having a little bit of bad luck? God will destroy the armies of the nations that will attempt to stop him from setting up his kingdom. Then he will judge the nations how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. And then he will establish his kingdom. Psalm 2 gives you the preview. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? He will have them in derision. He will laugh at them and destroy them. Revelation 19, we come back at the church to set up the kingdom. Wow. 
learn from the lives of Christians who have been taken captive by sin and pay attention to what they have thrown away and sacrificed. The years of being a great witness thrown right out the door because of some affair or some passion. The destruction of the family. Sometimes the cost of the rebellion turning their back on God. God will hold the father and mother responsible for that action. And if they remain in the world, they will be judged for all that. If they repent, they must live with that carnage, with the consequences, honorably, that they've brought it upon themselves, not that God has done it because he's vindictive. 2 Peter 2, 20 through 21 says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments and deliver to them. That can be no one but a Christian who has turned away from God. Non-believers are delivered from the corruption. You must be born again. It's a strong warning. The book of Hebrews is an ongoing proclamation. Don't drift. Don't move away. Don't depart. The captivity information regarding Daniel was to proclaim it was ordered from the court of heaven by God. Notice secondly in 3 to 5. We have the cultural indoctrination regarding Daniel. In verse 3, Daniel declared Nebuchadnezzar ordered that some of the royal sea be selected for service to the palace. The instruction was given to his master eunuch. Then the king instructed Aphanas, the master of his eunuchs, the name Aphanas, we are not sure the etymology, the origin of that root and that name is confusing, uncertain. Uh, some believe it's Persian, some believe it's academia, we don't know. We know he was a eunuch as we see here. That title is an official position or it's a literal eunuch. In this case, it's very evident that the context speaks of a literal eunuch. Men who were castrated to oversee the harem of the king. So this way, they would not take the king's wives out on loan. Okay? And so... The same title is used for Potiphar in Genesis 39.1 when Joseph was there. But there it's an official title of officer because Potiphar had a wife. He couldn't have been a eunuch. So the context clears it up real simple. So it's used either for office as an officer or a literal eunuch. Here it's a literal eunuch. Very clear. Now, the various classes of the royal seed were... Uh, stipulated to bring some of the children of Israel, some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, some of the children of Israel. These, they, they were taken captive, and I'm sure other ones, but they're specified. Some of the descendants, the genetic offspring of the kingly line, some of the nobles, the status of being a prince. Very wise. The Babylonian culture, tradition, reached back to the age of Hammurabi where they would take the best of the captives to kind of make transition and to enhance the kingdom that they would take over. Very wise. Now notice in verse 4, Daniel declared the specific qualifications indicated. The cream of the crop, the best of the best of the royal seed. They were to be physically attractive. 
young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking. Listen, politicians know they don't want no ugly ducklings like you and I. They know that if you can get some beautiful woman and make her a politician to be able to speak in such a way that it seems like she says something but says nothing, they can get business done. And the same with a handsome man. It's all about the worldly structure, the characteristic, the model of the world. Young, meaning child, boy, youth, most likely they're teens, 12, 13. You see, history teaches us that dictators and, 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 and horrible men that rule know that their hope is in the youth to indoctrinate, to contaminate for their purposes. They could have no blemish. It means no physical defect or deformity. The same word is used for the high priest of the Old Testament, Leviticus 21.17. For Absalom, 2 Samuel 16.25, he was a very handsome guy. Hitler understood the value of youth with his SS and his children's army and his brown shirts. They were to be good-looking, pleasant, appealing, handsome, again, for political purposes. They were to be of excellent intelligence, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. Gifted in all wisdom means skilled in shrewdness, prudence, interpreting riddles or proverbs to administrate politics, religion, and even wars and treaties. Possessing knowledge to be personally acquainted with perceptive understanding, well-educated, well-rounded. Quick to understand, to have the ability to think, formulate thoughts, and comprehend with clear insight and discernment. Now notice the purpose was to pick only those who qualify for the Chaldean education. So from the cream of the crop, there would be the cream of the crop. Only these four are going to be mentioned, Daniel and his three friends. We don't know how many others, but God focuses on them, and perhaps because only few we're committed to God. Remember, the road to heaven is not crowded. Jesus said, few there be that find it. He says, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Those with the ability, literally means might and strength of these firm qualifications to be firm, to serve, to stand or to be stationed in the king's palace in order to aid the king in the Jewish affairs and the duties of state. A great transition, great power, efficiency. Nebuchadnezzar was being shrewd king in preparation of these captives, the best that could be supplied to be those mediators, to make the transition smooth, as well as indoctrinating them and hopefully winning their heart over to Babylon, which I'm sure they did regarding many. But what Nebuchadnezzar did not realize was that God was preparing these captives for his smooth transition into the time of the Gentiles that he was going to reveal through Daniel. Even as God prepared Moses as he was taught in all the wisdom of Egypt. 
And with that, we can already see in this first study of the Old Testament book of Daniel the applicable truths that are sure to challenge our lives today. And Pastor Xavier will be continuing in Daniel chapter 1 next time. Of course, you can hear this message again online anytime by selecting today's date at the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And as always, we have CD copies available as well. And the title you want to ask for is simply, Groom for the King's Court. We just ask that you include $4 with your request to help cover the costs. Now, once again, that title to ask for is Groom for the King's Court when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com